News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Today is Remembrance Day, and we are talking about you know sharing the history of this day, sharing your family's connection to this day if you have one. I would love to hear that story, Simi at cknw.com, but let's check in with our Raji Sohal this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, my uh, child, you know, is in kindergarten now, and um, they had a Remembrance Day assembly, school assembly, a virtual oh. one yesterday. And I was so curious to see what kids are learning about Remembrance Day uh, these days. Um, you know, I was thinking back to when I was a kid and would go to those assemblies. And to be honest, Simi, what I remember from being that age at those assemblies is, I think, a sense of confusion um, about what was war and what were soldiers. I didn't make all those connections. And I think in part Mm -hmm. it's because, you know, they want to be sensitive around children, that kind of thing. But my daughter came home with a lot of frank facts about Canada. Um, She talked about gratitude, a word I did not know when I was her age, when I was five years old. That's great though. And Yes, it's wonderful. You were speaking uh, earlier with uh, Gord or Gord McDonald about how uh, for a period of time in our history, in fact, 1921 to 1930, um, Armistice Day and Thanksgiving were in the same week in November. And I thought that's just perfect because um, this is a day where we are so thankful, so grateful for the sacrifices that uh, people who came before us and people even now are making for our country. I never thought of it that way. You know what? You make an excellent point because I was thinking, oh, does that give Remembrance Day its full due, right? Considering that it's Thanksgiving and people are thinking about the turkey dinner and all that. But the way you put it is, you're right, that makes way more sense, is that it's that whole week then would be about gratitude. Yeah. And so one thing that my five-year-old was bringing up yesterday was uh, she was talking about how we need to give gratitude for such and get this. She heard the word, learn the word privileges. <laughs> so for oh, the privileges nice. that we enjoy today and yeah, then I got to have a conversation with her about uh, being grateful for the legacy of our Canadian peacekeepers who have you know been to war-torn regions yeah. throughout the world to protect other people's liberties and freedoms too. And uh, I also learned that over 2 million, well over 2 million Canadians have served throughout history and and many, many of them giving their lives too. I I think we're much better. And obviously this illustrates that point too. We're much better at this now with kids than we were say, well, when I was growing up. And I think the, the change of that really is the war in Afghanistan, that for the longest time, there wasn't really an active engagement that Canadian soldiers were heavily involved in, like the war in Afghanistan. That changed everything. So all of a sudden, we had younger veterans, right? Yeah, there's that to talk to us to about me. their experiences. For sure, there is that. I think also, we went through a strange period in time where we we thought like we have to be anti-war without acknowledging that unfortunately, we have to engage in war sometimes to find peace. And there have been so many um, Canadian peacekeeping missions that have ensured the peace of others, the freedoms and liberties of other people around the world. Um, when I was a little kid, I was made aware that my now late grandfather, Chan Singh Sohal, served uh, the British in the Second World War. But it was very hard, I remember as a kid, to get him to say anything about it. Yeah, so um, true. 
he's very tight lipped about his experiences, which I, I'm sure were, were hard to deal with. You know what? That's very true. And I know that was the case in our family as well, that there's a lot of curiosity. But I, my grandfather who passed away uh, before I was born was not very open in talking about his experiences either in the mm. Second World War. And then on my husband's side of the family, um, you know, the great uncle who passed away, Charles Canning in the First World War, you know, what really made a difference, Raji, with that is the 100-year project. So when it was the 100-year anniversary of the First World War, uh, so 2014 to 2018, the federal government made a huge effort to digitize a lot of the records around that. And we were able to find out so much more about this 26-year-old young man from a small town in Newfoundland who went off to serve in France on the battlefields of the First World War. And we know so much more about him now, whereas for decades, the family had very little information. So there's some amazing information out there now. That's incredible. I haven't thought to uh, pick into my family's history there, but um, yeah, I will check that out. That's incredible. So uh, these documents are now online? Yes. In fact, we were able to find out so much information just by typing him in, um, you know, that he served in the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. We just had, you know, how family stories get passed down in generations and you tend to lose. He didn't have any children. He'd been too young to get married before kind of the war started. Uh, So stories have been passed down and passed down. We had some pictures, but I was able to go online and find out his service records, where he'd been serving, which battles he participated in, where he was likely killed, where he was buried. Up until then, the family had had very little knowledge about the fact that his name was even on a memorial at Beaumont Hamel in France. So Timmy, that's incredible. It's amazing. It gives me chills even thinking about it because that's information that was lost um, to the family in Newfoundland for so long that is now there. So if you've got somebody who you think served in either the First or Second World War, it is worthwhile going online and digging into the Ministry of Veterans Affairs because they have put a lot of that information online now. That's incredible. Another thing, Simi, that I heard you and Gord talking about was uh, the poppy and how you've been seeing the symbol of Remembrance yes. Day popping up on people's lawns. I haven't seen that yet myself, but what I have noticed this year round is that I've never noticed so many young people uh, wearing them. Oh, which really? Is, yeah, which is really touching. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm looking for it more, Maybe. but I thought for a few years I was not seeing young people wearing it, that, that people had lost a, a touch, a connection. Um, but as you say, it is, it, it's a very personal day and people choose to acknowledge it in different ways and uh, to observe it in different ways in our family. Um, well, my five-year-old got the ball rolling. So today we'll have, we'll have some conversations around it too. I absolutely love that your five-year-old got the ball rolling there. Uh, true. So I know a lot of people have a personal story, would love to hear it. I've got one this morning. Uh, let's see here. This is from Bernard. Bernard wrote me to say, my namesake, Bernard Albert Simpson, was killed in France, but interned at Brookwood Cemetery, England. Bernard says, I inherited his badges as well as the silver cross uh, sent to the family of the fallen. And, and Bernard said, thank you very much for mentioning them today. Everybody, I think wow. so many people have a family story like that, don't they? Yeah, and and some might have a family story that they're not aware of. Uh, that so takes it might take some digging around to uh, discover too. I think you should dig into it definitely. Um, Raji, thank you. 
Thanks so much, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal talking about remembering this day, the people connected to this day and their service. Would love to hear your family story. Simi at cknw.com. It is a very personal thing for many people. I also learned that this is actually called Poppy Day in many countries, actually. Uh, there's many Commonwealth countries that observe Remembrance Day on this day, but they also refer to it as Poppy Day in some of those countries too. You learn something new every year at this time, right? Anyway, share your stories with me, Simi at CKNW. Remembrance Day ceremonies will be taking place right across the country today. And as always, there'll be a lot of attention focused on what happens at the national ceremony taking place in Ottawa. That's at the National War Memorial. Well, that's where our David Aiken is. He's our Global News Chief Political Correspondent and joins us now. David, you've been covering this ceremony for more than 15 years, but given the pandemic, are things going to be different today? They are, thank goodness. There's going to be people here. And of course, last year at the ceremony here in Ottawa at the National War Memorial or wherever you were in the country, the Legion was telling people, don't come for the safety of the participants, safety of veterans. They asked people to stay away. It's different this year. The Legion is saying it's great that we can welcome you back. They're encouraging people, please come to a ceremony wherever you are. Wear a mask, obey public health guidelines. But that's one of the, the big differences is and the other big difference for the one here in Ottawa for the National Remembrance Day is it will be the first ceremony presided over by an indigenous governor general governor general Mary Mae Simon who of course is our uh, commander-in-chief of the armed forces and governor general plays a very important role in that uh, sense she will be wearing today the uniform of the Royal Canadian Air Force she can choose any any uniform she wants she's chosen the Air Force blues and that's what you'll see today if you're watching on uh, on Global at, I think, about 10.30 Eastern is when we're starting up. Okay, so that's that set it quite a year to have that happen too, isn't it? It's so fitting given everything else that's been going on in terms of reconciliation and stories about our Indigenous history. I, I think so. And, you know, there's, there's, there's been an increasing focus within the, um, the armed forces itself to encourage more indigenous Canadians to to sign up to uh, to join the forces they've had a very active recruiting campaign in that sense it's not been the most successful so far only about two and a half percent of our current servicemen and women are indigenous Canadians and that compares to a population in the country of five percent of our population is indigenous so the presence um, the continuing presence of indigenous veterans and indigenous servicemen and women that's important for the current uh canadian armed forces which is trying to develop and becoming more and more diverse hmm. okay so you mentioned the ceremony starts ten thirty eastern seven thirty pacific what what can we expect to see what's going to happen it's going to take very much sort of the traditional uh, sort of uh, role. The first thing i got to tell you is weather this year is going to be fantastic. There's no <laughs> wind. Good. It's sunny here in Ottawa today. <laughs> yeah, Four degrees is, I think, the temperature. So I brought a parka, but I don't think I'm going to have to break that out, which is good news. Everything gets underway, really, the action, about 1045 Eastern. And you'll see the prime minister and his wife arrive. They're the first dignitaries. The second dignitary to arrive will be the Silver Cross Mother, and her name is Jose Samard. Of course, the Silver Cross Mother represents all those who lost a, a, a son or daughter or a, or a spouse uh, in service. And Jose Samard lost her daughter, Karine Blay, in Afghanistan. Karine Blay was a trooper, and an IED went off underneath the vehicle she was in, and uh, she lost her life in service there. So Jose Samard is the second dignitary, second last dignitary to arrive, and then Governor General Simon arrives. We get things going with O Canada. You'll hear the last post played. 
and then there will be the moment of silence which will end precisely at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. That, of course, is the, the moment when the first world war, the war to end all wars, uh, ended in 1918. So that's the significance, of course, of that time of the day. We'll see some, wherever you are in the country, you may see some Royal Canadian Air Force planes fly over. They have all, they've got some planes dispatched to ceremonies all across the country. I think there's some in, in ceremonies in Vancouver. Here in Ottawa, it will be CF-18s that have flown all the way from Bagotville, Quebec. They'll do a flyover. And then one of the most moving things, if you watch this ceremony, is at the end of it, all the people here, all participants, it, we hope there's thousands of people here. There usually is when, when you're allowed to come. They take their poppies off and they come up to the tomb of the unknown soldier, which is right in front of the memorial, and everybody places their poppy on that tomb. And by the end of the hour, that, that tomb has literally got a blanket of, mm -hmm. of red poppies, and it's really quite a moving thing to see. So that's what we're expecting today. Again, people are back at all ceremonies. In other years, we've had upwards of 40,000, 50,000 wow. people at the National War Memorial. Last year, a few hundred, not even. Yeah. This year, we hope people are coming back downtown in the national capital. It's going to be quite a sight. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. It wouldn't really be a Remembrance Day, would it, if we didn't actually talk to a veteran who has served and what this day means to them. So joining us on the show this morning is Craig Thompson, a veteran, first vice president of BC Yukon Command of the Royal Canadian Legion. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Will you be participating in some ceremonies today? I will. As a matter of fact, I will be conducting the ceremony in Kamloops. Ah, okay. So is that going to be an in-person ceremony today, Craig? We are, yes. Um, we are um, allowed 100 people outdoors at our cenotaph, and that's exactly what we're having. Uh, we are keeping it primarily to veterans, uh, because we normally in Kamloops will get about 5,000 people come wow. out for our but that is just not practical today. So we're limiting it to veterans only, and um, we'll go from there. Okay, it sounds good. So how long have you been participating in this? How long have you been doing this? Oh, well, I've been a member of the Royal Canadian Legion for almost 50 years. I've um, only missed two Remembrance Day ceremonies in my whole career. So a uh, long time, long time. Yeah, what does it mean to you, Craig? How does, it, how does that make you feel when you go there? And, and I know this year you won't see the 5,000 people, but boy, when you do see that, that must, that must feel good. It, it does, because what it shows is that the people in the community actually care enough and respect their veterans enough to come out. Uh, usually in Kamloops, it's a nice chilly morning um, to come out and, and um, be there to support the ceremony and to support the veterans uh, in the community. It's really nice to see that. Yeah, have you talked to other veterans about that? Do they, do they feel similar? This is an important day for you? Yeah, they do. I mean, all veterans take Remembrance Day very, very seriously, um, no matter how long they served, whether they served a full career of 30-plus years or if they only spent a, a couple of years in the service. All veterans seem to to really um, relish around Remembrance Day. It's a good day to, to meet old comrades, uh, and, it, and it's a day to show respect for uh, those that have gone before us. And in some cases, um, those that we fought alongside uh, who didn't come back. Craig, it sounds almost like it's a bittersweet day, doesn't it? Because you are sharing memories, you know you're not alone, but on the other hand, some of those memories are, are not good memories. 
Yes, but we can't let those memories fade, uh, whether they're good or bad. That That's the whole issue of Remembrance Day, is remembering what Canadians did for the freedoms that we have today, the freedom to uh, assemble, the freedom to protest, the freedoms to blockade roadways. You know, those are all freedoms that came at the expense of the veterans who fought for this country and continue to stand up and serve this country. Do you think that we do a good job uh, in, in, in commemorating Remembrance Day? I think we do. Um, certainly the veterans uh, do a good job in, in coming out and, and uh, honouring those that went before. But the communities, like I said, in, in this community, we get huge numbers come out. And, and I've seen pictures of um, what happens in Ottawa. I've seen uh, film of what has happened in other ceremonies around British Columbia, particularly the one in Vancouver. And those are not all veterans in, in those places. Those are people that, uh, that appreciate the military, that appreciate what was done for them in the past and it's really nice to see all the people come out and be able to share things with with our veterans on this day. Is it therapeutic Craig like for you as well? Yeah I think it is um, you know it, it'd be nice if remember if people would remember um, all the time uh, or if we had more than one remembrance day in a year but yeah it is it's therapeutic to come out and and see your comrades to to share with them and just to to stand by the cenotaph and um, look at the names that may be on your cenotaph and, and remember what they went through and, and uh, what they've done for us overall. Now, how have poppy sales been like this? I know that a lot of that goes towards supporting the legions across the country and the activities. Uh, what's it been like this year? Well, it doesn't go to supporting legions, Simi. Uh, I need to correct you on that. Poppy sales are trust funds held by the Royal Canadian Legion and used only for specific purposes, primarily concerned with, with veterans and their families. Uh, poppy sales do not help uh, pay the bills at a local legion. Poppy sales and, and donations are used only for veterans um, programs such right. as um, housing, uh, service dogs, and and things like that. So um, it's important then. So how yeah, have, how have sales it, been? The well, we won't really know until after uh, the weekend. Once we start um, collecting all of the poppy boxes around in the different communities. But I'm going to have to say that in my area, it's a little bit slower than usual. And there was um, a news report a, a few days ago uh, with showing how many people were not wearing poppies. And I paid attention around here and I found the same thing here is that there's, there's not as many people wearing a poppy this year as we normally see. And I, I'm not sure what the reason for that is. Um, but, you know, if, if you haven't been wearing a poppy, please put one on today, at least today, and, and um, show that respect for our veterans. And I know that I think I don't think you're alone on that one. I've been hearing that actually from a number of different places, just not seeing as many people wear them. Let me ask you, Craig, the, the tradition is as well that if you go to a ceremony, you leave your poppy at 
the cenotaph there. Is that right? Well, a lot of people do that. Yes, um, that's that's quite uh, quite popular. Um, it depends on where you are and and the service you're doing yourself. But yes, uh, a lot of people leave uh, poppies on the cenotaph. And I, I would like to just uh, say here, Simi, that this year marks the hundredth anniversary of the poppy of remembrance in Canada. So you know, this year it, it's kind of even more important to put a poppy on because it is the 100th anniversary. And there's still time to do that. Um, Craig, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the ceremony today. Thank you, Simi, for having me. And um, thanks very much for bringing uh, the veterans forward today. Anything that we can do to help. That is Craig Thompson, a veteran, first vice president of BC Yukon Command of the Royal Canadian Legion. He is in Kamloops, as you heard him say. And he said he has noticed that not as many people are wearing poppies. And I wonder if that's because we're just not fully back to normal yet with people being out and about and doing things. Um, You know what? You still have time, though, to get a poppy. As he pointed out, this is also the 100th year of commemoration of using the poppy for Remembrance Day. So grab one while you can today and make that all-important donation. Now, check with your local community about whether or not the Remembrance Day ceremony where you live is going to be open to the public. As Craig also pointed out, in Kamloops, it is limited to veterans only, about about 100 people in person. The same is said, I think, for downtown Vancouver, for the Victory Square Cenotaph. It is limited, but it will be available for you to watch online. You can hear it as well here on 980 CKNW. Watch it on Global BC and BC One. But they are not, they do not want like huge crowds to come down there. In years past, you would see thousands of people do that. So they're hoping that you can please, you know, get that poppy, commemorate, watch it online, but check with your local community about whether or not it is a public ceremony where you live. Up next on the show, we are going to talk about this really interesting story that is developing within police departments. Could a bidding war for experienced police officers negatively impact police forces in BC? We will find out what the president of the National Police Federation has to say about that coming up next. We've been hearing in the news about how all sorts of different businesses are offering incentives and bonuses to attract staff. And now you've also heard that the City of Victoria is offering incentives to hire police officers, $20,000 incentives actually. And they're actually hoping to get this new crop of officers on patrol quickly because they are specifically recruiting experienced officers, as opposed to training new recruits, which could take a lot longer to get those recruits on the streets up and running. So in Victoria, they've said that this office, this offer is limited to the next 12 police officers that they hire. According to Victoria Police Chief Delmanic, they are currently short about 35 officers. They've had a number of recent retirements and they've got some challenges that officers are facing in that city. What does this mean, though, for other police departments? Is there a competition now going on for experienced officers here in BC? Joining us now is Brian Seve, President of the National Police Federation. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Brian, have you heard of something like this happening before? Uh, I think it's a bold move by Victoria. I think, uh, uh, you know, we might end up in this world where um, the shrinking number of candidates looking for a career in service and policing 
uh, every police service is going after a shrinking pool. Uh, and that really speaks to the leadership of police organizations as well as police associations to um, put some shine back on that career, which really is a fantastic uh, opportunity for a lot of folks in Canada. So is this something that is going on everywhere, like across the country? I think, yes. I mean, you, you, we have seen it within the RCMP. We've seen it across the country where <clears throat> the pool of people who want to become police officers uh, has been decreasing, and we're all chasing the same shrinking number. So in the end, four, five, ten years down the road, you will end up um, with um, uh, fewer experienced police officers on the road just because we can't attract. So it sounds like that same kind of labor shortage, Brian, that so many industries are facing right now is the same when it comes to police departments. Definitely. So what about here in BC, though? Are there unique circumstances here? We've talked a lot about the Surrey Police Service, um, you know, hiring a lot of officers. Do you think that's going to make the situation more challenging? Well, in Surrey, it's, you know, they have a unique challenge there because they're trying to create a brand new police service and attract basically, uh, oh, 800 new police officers, whether they try to bring over laterals experienced from other police agencies, that just compounds the problem for Vancouver or Delta or Port Moody or even Victoria. Um, but yeah, a massive up, uphill battle for, for, for Surrey or any police service that's trying to uh, maintain service levels at the ground level. Is it? We also know that, you know, they call it that silver tsunami, right? You've got officers that are aging out here, too. So are retirement's going to be a big issue? Well, you know, a police service is going to be demographically refre- reflective of Canada and the community that it polices. So, yes, I think in every profession across Canada, you know, whether it's teaching or nursing, you will see exactly that, that silver tsunami. Um, so it just begs the point even further that how do we um, globally make policing more attractive as a, as a career of choice? How do we do that? Well, <laughs> there's the $64,000 question. And I think a lot of the police leaders in Canada, especially the lower mainland and larger centers, really need to put their heads together and, and uh, figure out how we do that. I don't think a short-term um uh, recruiting bonus is the long-term solution. It might be a patchwork. This is a, a new thing, though, isn't it, Brian? Because, like I know, for decades it was almost the opposite, right? It was the whole system was designed to really narrow it because so many people were applying for those jobs. Certainly, I mean, our experience in the RCMP. Uh, I mean, uh, when I applied, you know, uh, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen years ago, we had seventeen thousand applicants. Per year for maybe a thousand positions. Uh, in today's day and age, you're probably down to about six thousand for a thousand positions. So, where where have we missed the boat? Is where we have to look at that. And I would suspect it's commensurate with uh, the OPP, Vancouver, very very similar. So, is it a funding issue at the JIBC? Is it uh, a PR issue? Uh, I mean, traditionally. Police services haven't done a fantastic job communicating the successes and the good news that they do. Yeah, um, that's maybe very true. Maybe we need to look at it from that side of the coin to 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 really shine those buttons on the uniform more. 
You raise a good point when it comes to recruiting too. Like I know a number of young people who've gone to a recruiting session for different police departments and they all come away saying, no, thanks. Does the message do you think need to change as well? Is that that they're still recruiting the same way they recruited, you know, 20 years ago? And that's exactly where we're going is, uh, is, is, you know, at least from our perspective, we're trying to bring a different lens to policing and shining the positive light of everything that to do, you know, cram the cruisers, food banks and uh, community outreach, all of those really outstanding stories that happen 99.9% of the time. Um, so is that where the, the actual profession of policing needs to go is to change that narrative, if you will, of what it means to be a police officer in 2021 and beyond. Is it possible to train more people too? Definitely. I mean, you've seen us ask for uh, the province of BC for increased funding for training, increased resources for the mental health issues. I mean, when you talk about the exposure in the public safety field, whether it's nursing, paramedics, firefighters, or police officers to traumatic events, those have a long-lasting effect. We need to um, uh, do preventative measures and have the treatments in place so that um, should they be exposed to that, they have the resilience to get back to work. So make the job more attractive. Exactly. So do you think that'll work? Like, is it time to also perhaps go into the universities, go into the colleges, talk directly to people, try to recruit them? Well, I think a lot of police services do that, you know, from from job fairs and such at universities, graduation weeks, colleges and such. But, you know, maybe it's the message and how we deliver that message of what a career in ex-police service is going to give you and how satisfying it can be. Uh, the majority of police officers that I know love it. It's an extremely hard job, but it's an extremely rewarding career. Is this Victoria Police Department story, Brian, do you think it's a bit of a wake-up call? Well, I think, uh, you know, I have to give credit to the chief there. Like I said at the beginning, that's a bold move and, and good on them for uh, for for taking the initiative and actually bringing the discussion to the forefront because you know we wouldn't be having this conversation today if they hadn't and it's you have to start somewhere that's very true brian thank you thank you have a great week you too brian Sauvé is the president of the national police federation talking about the move by the victoria police department to offer an incentive $20,000 for the next 12 experienced police officers that they are able to hire. They're short almost three dozen officers, they said, in the Victoria PD. But they need experienced officers so that they can get them integrated and on the road as soon as possible rather than hiring kind of newer, inexperienced recruits. This is a challenge that many police departments are going to be facing in the years ahead. And you've got the Surrey Police Service hiring officers too. So is it just that the you know policing has become less of an option, career option for people out there? I mean, it used to be so competitive. It used to be so hard to get a coveted job with a police department. Uh, what has changed about that? Do people just look elsewhere? Uh, well, I'm sure there'd be a lot of discussion about that for sure. Raji Sohal is back with us this morning to talk about this announcement that the um, city of Surrey and UBC have made recently. It's a huge investment in the future of North Surrey. Good morning, Raji. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, huge is right. UBC has uh, spent $70 million on 135,000 square foot property at uh, the southeast corner of King George Boulevard and Fraser Highway, where there's currently a community church. And its neighbors there would be the King George Skytrain Station, which would be excellent for commuting students and staff. And then, of course, uh, immediately adjacent is also the Surrey Memorial Hospital and a cancer clinic, which all of this would matter if UBC intends to use that area for clinical settings for health and, right. and things like that. And um, the announcement, you know, it created a splash, but there weren't a lot of details and not lots of info afterwards. Uh, so I wanted to follow up and I checked in with uh, the North Surrey Wally MLA, Bruce Ralston, and he said that UBC's purchased this property as a, a revenue generator. So it's going to be a combination of residential and commercial space that is going to be used to generate revenue to build um, some other facilities too. We don't know exactly what those facilities uh, will be, but like I said, there's a good chance some of it's going to be clinical and medical related. Um, but how did $70 million just appear for this purchase? Here's Mr. Ralston. The, the property is purchased by the UBC Property Endowment Fund. They they have um, just given their location on the endowment lands and some of the development that they've done over the last 25 years, uh, the residential development, more on the south side of the campus. Uh, they have uh, a, a fund which provides uh, a flow of uh, revenue to uh, the university. Well, I think it's around about 50% of their operating revenue comes from the provincial government and 50% is generated internally from their other sources of revenue. So because they're the, the first university in British Columbia and they've been around for um, slightly more than a century, they, they've had an opportunity to, to build that, that financial infrastructure. And so, so that, that gives them more discretion to, uh, to make purchases like this. This has been a long time coming, especially after SFU Surrey popped up. Well, the MLA for North Surrey, Bruce Ralston, told me it's likely that, again, the immediately adjacent hospital, because of that, that there is going to be some clinical work going on there. We also know that there's going to be a new cancer clinic going up in Cloverdale that he talked to me about. But the the purpose of the property isn't, isn't totally clear. No official word on that from UBC. Um, there's going to be a public process now, Simi, uh, where they receive submissions and then an internal planning process. No word whatsoever on when they'll be breaking ground. It's still going to be a ways off. But Mr. Ralston says that the location is everything, and that's because Surrey itself is booming and it's transforming. Surrey is undergoing a transformation uh, from, I think, uh, what you might call a traditional suburb to really a second city centre. Um, increasingly, there's the downtown in Vancouver and increasingly there's a downtown in Surrey. And it, it really is, the will be and, and continues to be the, the hub for the valley. In 2019, as a government, um, we, uh, we announced our intention to promote the city of Surrey as a second lower mainland downtown and, uh, and drive and build an innovation corridor that extends uh, up the valley. So, so I think in the, in the sense of a, a regional plan, uh, uh, downtown Surrey, North Surrey, is really pivotal for the growth of the region and, in my view, for the growth of the province. And 
in many ways, Surrey represents what's best uh, about British Columbia and indeed about Canada. Um, we, we welcome people from uh, everywhere. We uh, integrate them. Uh, we have a bustling, thriving, uh, growing uh, economy and, and a very strong, uh, interesting, diverse community. Yeah, Simi, SFU Surrey has done wonders for the area. Now, they've got the architecture there is just beautiful, it's stunning. The area right immediately around SFU Surrey is fantastic, and it's just done wonders for the city. But still, what you see on the streets in some parts of Surrey, including right where the UBC property is, is a rough area. Mr. Ralston talks about that in my interview with him. Simon Fraser is well established uh, in the in the city centre. The city hall has a, a precinct around it, and uh, Simon Fraser University and the city hall are working together in developing that uh, uh, subregion or that precinct. I think is the is the way they refer to it. So, yes, there are challenges uh, here in the North Surrey. We're in the middle of a not only a COVID pandemic, but a uh, a drug overdose a pandemic, a, a second health emergency, and that is reflected uh, in what you see on the streets in Surrey. Although, in my experience, um, things uh, have got better uh, uh, over the over the last uh, while. Certainly, the impact of COVID has uh, has driven uh, many things in in the reverse direction, but things are beginning to get better. The government. Uh, has invested in uh, several uh, important housing projects. There's one Peterson Place on uh, King George and about uh, it's 111th, 112th, uh, which is, uh, I think it's uh, a number of units for people that might otherwise be living on the street. The government bought a, uh, I think it's a travel lodge over on uh, 104th, just west of 140th uh, and just south of uh, our Lady of Good Council church property there. Again, there's 70 units for which will be um, uh, targeted for people who might otherwise be out on the street. The, uh, the government is also building in Guilford, uh, down, further down 104th at 148th, uh, a, uh, a building right beside the superstore. Raji, stories like this are so important. You and I both grew up in Surrey, um, and we, we've seen the changes there, right? Woo! I Lots know. Of changes. And I think sometimes people hear stories like this in the news and maybe they don't realize or they think, oh, it's just another announcement from the government. But it's not. I just wanted to no. tell this story about 30 mm-hmm. years ago, I was a reporter at the Surrey Leader newspaper. So it's now oh, the, yeah. the Surrey Now Leader. And at the time, one of my assignments during that time was to go to the public hearings, believe it or not, <laughs> for the neighborhood plan for Surrey City Centre. So I know I'm really dating myself with this story. And I remember going to these hearings and coming back and writing up the stories and we talk about them in the office and we thought, boy, is is Surrey Council crazy? Because they were talking about developing a downtown Surrey core, vibrant, you know, thriving community where at that time there was a Safeway and um, right. and just like just parking lots essentially, and we thought, oh, we just don't see it. We don't see it. This seems ridiculous. 
but that's the area that you're talking about right now, where the SFU is, where the new <laughs> yeah. city hall is. And it took, you know, 20 plus years to make it happen. But I just, it just speaks to how important these neighborhood plans are. People think they aren't, but they are. They are. And so is neighborhood and resident input. So whenever they ask for the public to send in their ideas, um, their complaints, their dreams and hopes, it ends up somewhere. And sometimes that's uh, in the consideration of these plans. Exactly. You're so right. People need to give their input because you may think, well, I don't see it happening tomorrow. It's not about tomorrow. It's about 5, 10, (laughs) 15 years from now. And that's why this, I think, UBC investment is so significant too. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. Oh, great story about what's happening there out in Surrey. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Well, here's a good news story for you. Health Canada is funding special schooling for service dog trainers so they can teach the dogs to help veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is an online training course. It's going to be funded by the Department's Substance Use and Addictions Program. And they essentially want to make more dogs available to be able to help veterans with PTSD. This sounds amazing. Well, Professor Colleen Dell is an expert in animal-assisted interventions at the University of Saskatchewan and headed the team that helped design this toolkit. And she joins us now on the show. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Tell me about your research into this. What kind of a difference can these type of service dogs make? Uh, Yeah, the research is growing and we're learning more every day. If you ask veterans, they could tell you exactly uh, how the the dogs support them. So we're really lucky to try and capture that with an empirical lens now. And it's things like uh, waking them up from a nightmare, even getting them outside to be more physically active. Some of them reconnect with hobbies that they had because now they have an ability to leave the house, whereas before, as part of their PTSD PTSD symptoms, they were really isolating. And the dogs really do things like keep them present because animals are really good at that. They keep us present and in the moment. And that's, uh, how, how do you train a dog to do that, though? Yeah, and, and that's that's not my expertise area. This is why we're we're <laughs> right. working with the service dog organizations. Um, they the wonderful things that they do with the dogs and all the training and all the expertise that they have in that. And what we do is we come in now and we're training the service dog organizations about uh, recovery from addiction because a lot of their veterans who are going through with them and they have a connection with right to train those dogs. Um, those veterans have substance use problems, and so it's really important for that service or that service dog trainer to be aware of that. In the in the recovery field, we talk about no door being the wrong door. So if you know you have harms from substance use, and one of the connections you have in your life is to the service dog trainer, it's it's really great for that service dog trainer to have basic information. Um, like stigma from substance use. Sometimes we might use the wrong language or stigmatizing language. So just sharing that basic information, how substances impact the body and so forth, is, is really important. So how do you do this online, though? I know this is part of the toolkit that you helped to design. Were there challenges yeah. with that? Well, we're really lucky. Our team, we've been working together for quite, since 2016 with our original research project. So we have a lot of findings, and our team is made up of academics from University of Regina, McMaster, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, lots of experts in the field, alongside veterans themselves who have worked and trained a service dog with an organization. 
and then also service dog organizations themselves. So everyone's at the table to make sure that what we're creating makes sense to them and is digestible to the service dog trainers, right? Because we want to make sure that that product makes sense to them and they're going to use it. So we are really lucky, too. We linked up with uh, Redwood Performance Group. They're a group out of Toronto, and they do... Um, online training. And so as a university professor, I do online training with my students, like my courses. But with this group, they were really able to help us take everything to make it more digestible for the service dog trainers. So for example, one thing that is in each of our modules is a little component about dog welfare, because that's really important to the service dog trainers. So we wanted to bring that in all under this umbrella of this um, substance use recovery and uh, the importance of peer support, with the dog being one of those peers. Okay, so who can access this? It, it's free, and any service dog organization can. Even though we're focused on veterans, um, it really is applicable a lot more than just service dog organizations. Um, I think almost anyone with a, you know, I think we all need some... Um, increased understanding around addiction and healing from addiction, and then also increased understanding about how our dogs and other animals in our lives support us um, in our healing. So that's Mm -hmm. a large part of it too. So So adding that substance use part to this, Colleen, like is that that a new thing? Like when we talk about PTSD, that seems like a new aspect to us talking about that. It is. It, It is. And we know... Just anecdotally, and in our own research, we found over time, even the amount of medication, because the veterans are on so much medication often, right, for their PTSD symptoms, and we even find over time when the dog is introduced that that medication decreases. And sometimes just that medication itself is misused, right, because they're trying to get, they're coping, they're coping and trying to stay alive. So that, it's not it's not a surprise that that medication may be misused, like opioids, right? But there are other substances like alcohol, and then we know when that mixes with some of the prescribed drugs. It's really when the veterans are looking for something to make them feel better, it, it, it should be no surprise. So that, you know, the dog is there for the PTSD symptoms for sure, and they're, they're, they learn things to help the veteran. But there's also this other side, it's interconnected with the substance use, right? But there's also that connection that the veterans have with the dog. So we know in substance use, there's a lot of stigma and people feel shame. And we know that the service dogs, they don't judge. So some of the veterans talk about, I tell my service dog everything, right? And they will talk to them for hours. And, and that's great. And so if you were training a service dog for a veteran then or another person, to know that that exists as well and that's what's going on is really important because you can help validate that, right? So if we know this is so valuable, Colleen, yeah. having these dogs be a part of their lives, what's taken us so long to get on this bandwagon? You know, it's a great question. And one, my answer to that is the role of animals in society, we don't give them the credit that they're due. I think, though, in the last two years with the pandemic, we have seen a little bit more, and they got a lot more credit because so many people have adopted. So many people, you know, have their, their dog at their feet while they're working at home, and they see how important the dog was. But you think about it. We eat, do- we eat dogs. Some people do. We eat animals. We wear animals as leather, right? There, it's a very human-centric world that we live in. And 
that to me explains why we don't recognize the animals for the sentient beings that they are. They're feeling living beings and they give a huge amount to us. And we give back to them too, right? Dogs have been domesticated for a long time. There's a really reciprocal relationship there. So in that context, I'm not surprised. But I'm also really hopeful because, again, through the pandemic, there's been a lot. There's been a shift. There's definitely been a shift. I think so too. So then is there more of a desire? Like, is there a lot of demand for this then to provide these dogs to veterans? There is a demand for sure. There absolutely is. And... I know in Canada there's been, it's just emerging in how, oh, how you train a dog, what are the standards across the provinces. I know BC has their own standards, Nova Scotia does, so everyone really needs to get on the same page around that, and that's going to propel the field forward. And then for, or you know, researchers like us, just so thankful for the veterans that we do work with and the service dog organizations, because we're allowed to add that evidence behind it and that's what everyone wants right they want that evidence and and that's what we're doing and yeah so that is not that hasn't been around for 20 years that's like five to ten years where we've been collecting data ourselves and others as well of course right so the hope is then then with this push now with this toolkit online toolkit available uh, Mm -hmm. to get more service dogs trained up for veterans yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more awareness we make, right, the more that's the important part. Though in Canada, I know, too, there are huge waiting lists for veterans with the service dogs. Um, they, where veterans are waiting up to two years, yeah, depending on the organization, right? And that's really hard. And you think about someone with a substance use uh, issue as well, and we always say if someone needs help, they need it today, Right? And oftentimes with the service dogs, it's kind of yeah. like the last resort because everything else hasn't worked. So someone's like, hey, why don't you try a dog? Right? Yeah. When in reality, we should be doing that way more upstream or even just sharing information about how animals in our own lives can be helpful to us. Yeah. Right? And that's just usually now a discussion that's happening. Well, so we, hopefully it'll happen yeah, it. yeah. more now. Colleen, thank you so yeah. much for your time. For sure. Thanks for having me. That's Colleen Dell, an expert in animal-assisted interventions at the University of Saskatchewan. She is part of this team of people from universities across Canada, uh, veterans, service dog groups, um, Indigenous elders who got together to help design a, a toolkit online that would allow service dogs, more of them, to be trained with the help of funding from Health Canada to provide those service dogs to veterans who are dealing with PTSD. It is a great, great program, and I hope they are able to help so many more people. Right now on this Remembrance Day, uh, let's give a little something away, 